Hi friends, welcome to the Psyche Mental Wellbeing Podcast with me, your host, Hannah. On the show, I'm joined each episode by an amazing guest to have an honest conversation, share our real life experiences and tackle stigma and misconceptions around mental health along the way. We believe that everyone would benefit from focusing a little more on their mental well-being, and we're here to support you to do just that. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Happy Wednesday. Hope you've had a good couple of days this week. I'm recording this on Mother's Day. And in the UK, I know the US and, and other places are different, um, but it's um, it's it's been a little tricky for me in the sense that you know not seeing my mum and, and my stepmom, although we live at a reasonable distance, so often I wouldn't anyway be able to see them. But I I did make an effort to to send them something nice in the in the post for a little surprise. So I've spoken to both my mums today which has been nice but I think it's a difficult day for a lot of us for a lot of reasons so I think there is something um I was I was talking to someone uh, the other day who was who was saying that actually with lockdown they're talking to family and relatives more uh, particularly people in different countries connecting much more than than we would maybe before lockdown and, and covid and I think there's something psychologically about being told you can't do something. You can't see this person. You can't visit this person. You have to stay at home. And that enforced restriction makes us want to do it more. Whereas maybe you wouldn't visit family that often, but suddenly the fact that you can't means you really want to, or you're really aware of that desire to, to see people. So it could be that you that you would normally see family on Mother's Day or birthdays or whatever the occasion is and suddenly being told you can't makes you miss it more and and want it more um so it might be that you're not able to see people it might be that you have lost those people in your life that you've lost your mother or that you are estranged from your mother or children and and that it's a painful day uh in those ways so um and I've spoken to a few people um this week who I know it has it is a difficult day for and and I guess I guess it comes back to one of our our big messages about that importance of being kind to yourself um and actually emotions which is something that we're talking about today so see like my my rambling is relevant in a way (laughs) that um I don't want to kind of preempt everything that that Catherine says although there's so much stuff that I'm not going to ruin it all <laughs> but we can label some of those really powerful emotions that are difficult to experience and and painful to experience as negative um but they they're really informative about what is going on for us and and I think when you have experienced loss um of loved ones there can be some really painful emotions around that and we can be very quick to not want to feel them uh to just be happy and and not experience that those painful feelings and and I think it's um it can be easy to get stuck in them um and I've with my depression have been in in those kind of places where you kind of stay stuck uh in there 
Um, but we can also try and suppress them and not feel them. And, and I think sometimes we just need to let ourselves feel the feelings. Um, we just have to sit in that in that low place, that miserable place for a little while. And then the next day we can think about picking ourselves up. I, I often speak to friends who are like, oh, I'm just in a, a bit of a funk. I, I need to do this. I need to be doing this. I need to get on with that. And actually sometimes just honoring how you're feeling um, and acknowledging it and that what you're feeling is what you are feeling um, and allowing yourself to feel that stuff and then can think about uh, moving through it or other things that maybe can make you feel better or processing what is going on and, and all of that stuff. But if it's a difficult week for you, a difficult month, difficult year, having a little bit of grace and kindness towards yourself um, and acknowledging that that it it has been tough, it can be tough, um, but you are tuning into this. You are, and I think that for me, podcasts often are um, a bit of a pick me up, a bit of self care, um, and that this is maybe a positive thing to have taken that step for yourself to tune in, to be listening, to hopefully get something out of it. And this is absolutely if you are feeling in that space the right conversation to be listening to because Catherine is awesome and shares so so much amazing stuff uh, we talk about so so many topics um, about emotions uh, about trauma about worthiness wakefulness there's just so much great stuff in this conversation so I really hope you enjoy it I really appreciate Catherine for joining us and sharing and I'm gonna pass over to that conversation and I'll be back super quickly at the end. Hi everyone and I'm really happy to welcome today's guest Catherine to the podcast. So Catherine welcome and if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Well thank you very much for having me Hannah. Um, well I live in Portland Oregon and I am in a wonderful second career though almost two decades in as a practicing psychotherapist in private practice. Um, my previous background was in public health which was also a career that was really beloved to me um, but I kind of got a call from the universe at 39 years old on a personal retreat and it's like I need to go be a therapist and it was pretty inconvenient. And then it's really been incredible to, my dad was a therapist, but not in private practice. And I've always loved personal work and personal growth, but it's been incredible to be in this part of the process um, and build the practice and work that I have. Uh, last year, I published a book on wakefulness um, that kind of reflects my personal journey and how I had to work through trauma and had to work through just, you know, my own human difficulties and find wakefulness within that life, kind of not despite it. And uh, so I'm proud of that. And then that that book is kind of launched um, conversations like this where I get to be out in the world and talking about what it means, especially in the world these days with COVID or with social unrest, how to navigate both inner world and outer world um, challenges and adversities. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. And that sounds amazing. And I'm sure we'll, um, we'll, we'll tell people about where they can find the book at the end. But uh, you mentioned wakefulness. And one of the things I always like to do when people 
talk about something, even if it's something that is a word that we use quite often to do a bit of a, um, a definition of what they mean by it. And I think wakefulness is one that people might have heard or maybe not so much. So could you briefly tell us what you mean by wakefulness? Well, I really appreciate that question. And I was um, really thoughtful about this, this word. Um, it's, it's, if we think of a wake up call and all of a sudden we get out of kind of a trance and then we're into clarity, we're into maybe a different part of our brain actually, we're into a different kind of presence. Um, in the book, I defined it as relaxed, connected to oneself and others intrinsically, connected to something larger, though I don't get a lot into what that might mean for people. So I don't do a lot of God or although that works for some of us, um, but it's really also about being kind of fully present. And so I would define that as our awakened self. So that's kind of wakefulness to me. And then we want to be applying that. How am I going to be, and those are the aspects I explore, wakeful in my relationships, wakefully, you know, facing my mortality, wakeful in my body, how I treat my body. And so um, bringing our awakened self to our life. And then finally, that's in contrast in a way to an ego self, where I kind of think of myself as separate and alone, that that really fosters comparison and competition and um, really is not our most conscious sense of self. So it's our most conscious self sense of self um, in um, those ways I just described. Does that does that land with you? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So it's kind of rather than the sort of egocentric way of being like me, 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 being in tune with ourselves, but also with that kind of wider, that connection. So not at the expense of that connection to other people, but it's kind of more connected to ourselves, but also other people. So it's a really, yeah. Yeah, it's it's great how you're um, describing that because so many people think of that as a binary and it's either, and especially in cultures such as maybe yours and mine, that um, the idea of a relationship to self is narcissism. And actually narcissism and selfishness come from an ultimately a lack of a true sense of self and relationship to self. And so we don't have to choose loving others or loving ourselves generously. And that is the first aspect of the, the book and kind of was the big piece I had to move through because my sense of self was really shattered when my dad left at 14 and actually, I mean, love him dearly. And we worked it out at the end, but didn't know his alcoholism was really driving that decision. It was framed and told to my sister and I is I can't really do family. So that's pretty shattering because that's pretty personal because he made it personal. So I had to really heal that sense of I'm not good enough for my father to love me and stay with me you know that worth piece which then was about not loving myself and a ton of behaviors that came from not loving myself so relationship to self is this beautiful way of being but for some of us we have to do restoration work to uh, like reclaim a whole and loving sense of self. So that's my first aspect I work with. And then those kinds of sections are in that aspect because I, I really believe if we don't have a relationship with ourselves, we can attempt to have a great or loving relationship to others, but it's pretty, it's a pretty strong correlate that it's, uh, you know, one begets the other, so. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think when you were saying that, 
that not being enough that definitely resonated with me as something mm-hmm. that I've had to work through still working through probably mm-hmm. will always be working through <laughs> I think I don't know if you would agree but I think that quite often is, is a common thing that people experience for whatever reason of of not feeling enough and absolutely you can you be in a relationship and that person could be the most loving and supportive but if in yourself you're feeling I'm not enough there's there's almost that block that you're putting up where you can't and this could just be me speaking from my personal experience of not feeling able to accept it because you just you don't really believe it because you don't feel right yourself if that makes sense. well it does and and that's just a it's why people that uh the idea of you can't take a compliment actually people can't truly internalize something that's incongruent so if we have a belief system that says i'm unworthy i'm unlovable right you know no i'm unwantable whatever it is, I don't belong is a key one and that interconnectedness to others, then actually even when the evidence would be uh, telling us something different, even when the love would be the medicine we need to feel like, oh, you do, it actually doesn't land. And so that's why inner work is so critical. And that's, I'm a deeply spiritual person, but I'm also so happy to be a clinician because I can help people with what it takes to be able to be in that expansive state, which includes having love be both given and received to your really wise point. point. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, and I guess, um, I know you said there are, there are multiple aspects that you cover in the book, but because, you know, we're, we're on this one now and it's one that definitely, and I'm just quite yeah. selfish to be honest on the podcast that I <laughs> think it about Let's me. Go for it. I love uh, it. <laughs> So I, yeah, I'd love to, to dive into this of if someone's listening, they're like, oh, that is me. (laughs) That that is me. What can we do to start to bring that, that kind of wakefulness and start to, to maybe heal that relationship with ourselves? Well, um, I want to tell a quick story and then tell you about the format of the book and then I'll, and then I'll um, go to kind of intervening because I think it's nice and many of us would read self-help books or have these ideas and actually feel kind of shameful because we couldn't make it happen. It's like, I want that and there's something wrong with me and I've done therapy or I've read the books and it's not changing. So in my book, my format is present a concept have practices because we actually have to go into neurodevelopment. If I'm gonna change a belief, it can't just be in my head. It has to live inside of me as something different. And for those of us that have trauma, it means we go back and do some of that healing work. And then I tell stories. So in in the part about uh, worth, I had one story and it was a gentleman, obviously alias, but if you have the book, you see that, and he didn't, he had a father that was absent. So it was a classic, why he didn't feel loved. And then that ended up impacting his sense of being good enough. My daughter was one of my readers for uh, the book and she was about 25 and she's like, mom, guess what? I've struggled with this and I didn't have a dad who was absent. And some of the people that are gonna read your book are gonna go, but I still don't feel good about myself, but I can't find that reason why. So I think to, again, the great point you're making, we do live in an egoic culture where worth is conditional. And so we're, whether that's from our family or trauma or even our culture, we have to prove ourselves. And even if we don't think we do, we're often living a life in that anxiety and that sense of if I achieve enough or if I look good enough or if I have a relationship. 
um, those invisible drivers. And so I told her story in the book, and I think that is important that even with, you know, a childhood where we're loved and our parents believed in us and maybe even said, you're, you're enough. You don't have to get an A. You don't have to kick this soccer ball perfectly. We still, some of us might struggle. So I kind of frame that as reclaiming our intrinsic worth. However, we come to any sense of insecurity about truly embodying the sense of enough. So one little trick we can do is imagine that in your case, maybe if that's something that you resonate with, not all of you think you're not good enough. It's a part of you and it's a confused part. And sometimes when we do what's called parts work, it's like, oh, so when I have that feeling, it's not, it doesn't make it true. It means I forgot again, or there's, there's a confusion. And once we have two parts, the part that knows my worth and the part inside of Catherine that doesn't know her worth, and usually she's about 14 years old, and we exactly know why she believes that. She's just seeing it in 2020 of like, oh, here's that evidence, right? I can help that part and I can have a conversation with her. So there's some inner dialogue work we can do. There's some soothing work. I believe we have truth serum within us that we can give ourselves. And the bottom line is, Hannah, you wouldn't have cried for food when you were an infant if you didn't know you were good enough. You would have thought, well, maybe my sibling is better than me. I won't cry, right? Or at the hospital or wherever. Like our core self knows the truth. It's the something happened along the way idea. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think that's really important and powerful, including your daughter's story, because I think sometimes when we when we look at look at things or we, we hear stories and we can kind of relate to the feeling but the experience is very different to our own we can feel like well yeah oh, my feelings yeah. I shouldn't feel like this. exactly and you get that kind of yeah that's sort of self-stigmatizing stuff of like well yes. there's something wrong with me because I shouldn't feel this because my life was amazing that's right. yeah that's right that's right and some people also and I do a lot of um what I could would call defense work because you know my parents didn't start having five daughters thinking let's really screw them up they really did their best and they actually not surprisingly come from a trauma background so they moved the dial generationally and I was loved and I was I was given uh, the next best iteration uh, through the ancestry and they still didn't have capacities for all of what was needed um, for themselves and, and, and for their children. So, but people get caught in that idea that if I if I own where I'm wounded, I throw my parents under the bus. And I think we need to make spaces called duality that is called parental loyalty that we can be grateful for and actually compassionate toward. They did their best. They they did what they could with what they had to work with, and not but. I didn't get what I needed. I still was failed in certain ways um, sometimes by my parents, right? We can hold two things at the same time. And sometimes we, we forget that we can do that. <laughs> sometimes actually opposite things like multiple kinds of feelings. I'm terrified and excited, or I don't wanna do something and I'm going to, or I'm sad and I'm even loving like with death you know we can we can connect with the love while we're also in deep pain when we lose someone mm. yeah I think that's really interesting the kind of you know this this spectrum of complex human emotions though that we can experience but mm. it's one mm. of these things that we we're not taught about them we just kind of pick them up and some of us 
don't pick them up so much and so we can have this really basic overview of like happy sad angry really simple emotions that actually there's so many more levels like the feeling wheel if anyone's seen a feeling wheel there are so many on those and and there are yeah and the and the old paradigm really was um and literally taught to children positive feelings and negative feelings so it's really so just the word negative i can't if i'm angry sad or scared that's a negative feeling. So I already then build an incentive not to feel those feelings, which will promote disassociation from those feelings, which actually will then have them be bigger, especially anger, will have them then I don't get into what I would call adaptive action with those feelings. If I know I'm sad, then I can both let those that wave through me and emotions are like energy, then they actually move and release. I also do an action, which would be to comfort myself or seek comfort from someone else. But if I won't let myself feel the negative feeling, it's a bad feeling, right? I don't get that experience and I don't heal. Same thing with with fear. Fear is about not feeling safe, logically or illogically. If I can't feel that, if I judge that, then I'm like not able to establish a sense of safety and calm my nervous system. And anger actually is almost even a form of love, but it really gets a bad reputation because it's how people express anger, not the anger itself, that I would say universally the problem. And so myself, that was one of the pieces. My trauma didn't turn into somebody, it was depression, but then um, it more took form in rage. But I didn't know that because I thought I was quote unquote, expressing my feelings. I thought I, no one ever taught me about regulated versus unregulated anger. And of course there was a wake behind me all the way up to the early years of parenting my children. I've had to do repair work with them because that rage was there and that's how I knew my trauma work was not done. Um, and so that is, it's just, it, like you say, it's very important to befriend emotions. It's very important to understand them as all critically important to our overall well-being, and that they have, they're like a guide. We think so much about our thinking as really our North Star and our navigator, but emotions and that circuitry is actually more, and intuition are more powerful in, and body sensations like somatic stuff in terms of truth. Yeah. I also agree that like the negative naming emotions negative uh, not a fan of but I wanted to kind of bring it back yeah. to parents because something that I believe and I don't don't know if you agree with this is that no matter how good your parents are you are everyone is going to pick up baggage through, <laughs> through their life and through that and, and I guess I'm not a parent but as a parent it's trying to give like the smallest amount of baggage <laughs> that you can and I think sometimes with the emotions it's the parent not wanting their child to to be angry, to be upset because they they struggle to deal with that powerful expression of emotion, or they, they want their child to be happy. Right. Um, by doing so, which is is you know it's a it's a normal thing. You want your child to be happy. You want the people around you to be happy. But what it actually does is minimizes that emotion and creates that kind of dissociation, um, as you said, to the emotions. So even if it's got the like the best intention behind it, it's adding a baggage. Well, and. That's right. And that's how we loop unintentionally to an inner dialogue that now I don't need my mom to shut me down because when I was needing to, you know, because you couldn't deal with certain emotions, then when I as a, a youngster was dealing with them because I have a human system, but there was nowhere to go. I both judge and shut that down. So when, of course, it pops in from time to time, 
I am telling myself that's not okay. Like, right. I am not supporting myself internally because I did not get external support. So whatever we experience, you know, and all the, from those attachment figures tends to be internalized. And so that's the work I often do is, you know, emancipating from the voices within to realize these are not my voices. Um, and of course your brain did that because your brain had no other choice. It was a sponge, you know, you were four. What were you gonna do? Like, I'm gonna call a friend. It's like, no, you're the one and you don't do sadness. So I have to put on my happy face when grandma's coming even though I actually don't like grandma. Like we didn't get to have our truth and they didn't get to have our their truth. And it is a capacity issue, not a malicious thing usually. The consequence, however, sadly is still the same. So it's, I, I, I fashion it as like psychic emancipation, not just financial or geographic emancipation. We have to emancipate ourselves from the conditioning forces. And that's again, part of the journey of then living as our awakened self, who I really am in touch with what's going on and working with it with far more understanding, skills, tools, ideas, practices, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how, um, I guess this may be a big question <laughs> because we've obviously talked about this. Um, well, we've talked about worth and, we, and we've talked about emotions. Um, but thinking about, I guess, trauma more widely, which which could look so many different ways, um, so individual. How can we go about transforming uh, our trauma and kind of healing from it? Is there, is it as unique as the trauma themselves, the trauma itself, maybe, or is there almost like um, roadmap might be the wrong word but do you know what I mean some kind of process yeah mm, something like that right well we want to think of trauma on a continuum so we don't again decide my pain isn't big enough to be worthy of intervention and treatment now treatment is kind of the medical model right of like but but that could be out there's many forms of medicine in terms of healing but what happens with the brain um, in general with lots of forms of trauma and lots of levels of trauma is it freezes. And then from that place, that frozen place, which might be an age, eight years old, or a, another part of a, a developmental process, things don't, like if there is sexual assault, even as a young woman, that's, if that trauma is not healed, and I just had a case of like, that changes the direct trajectory, but it might not show up for 15 years and two marriages down the road where all of a sudden I'm not okay. And it comes back online because it's, it's like a flash, it's like a PTSD kind of thing. So it doesn't go away, it freezes. And so trauma interventions are about working with, which is really intense work, almost going back and re-experiencing the thing. Now, that doesn't mean I, I would encourage somebody to go sit with an abusive parent if they're still alive, if, if they're continuing to be abusive. But there are strategies and therapy one can do to help that shift and move in the brain and um, kind of like unlock. And then the cool thing about our human system is our system knows how to heal. It just does. Um, but sometimes when traumas happened, we were so alone with what happened. It, it is helpful to have the company of another, whether it's a true other in some form, and it can be a therapist, um, but it doesn't have to even be a therapist that is like, oh, okay, I can go back. I can kind of deal with what I couldn't deal with at the time. 
I've got enough internal resilience to do that resourceness and I have support externally if that's also helpful. And I'm going to, I'm going to now like let this heal. So it's kind of brain work. It's relational work. And it, again, it's understanding, you know, I work with people that never thought that moving 14 times in their childhood, even though there was no divorce, even though there was no abuse for their system, because they had to keep adjusting to, do I fit in? Am I like, do people like me? Do I have somebody? Because my family isn't my only world, especially later in childhood. That might ultimately exist as a form of traumatic experience for a child, that disruption to connection to other. So it is good to throw that wide net about not having certain ideas about what it's to look like. Um, but it is about taking it seriously about um, time doesn't always heal trauma. It can soften it. It can create a kind of distance like it doesn't, I'm not dreaming about that thing anymore, maybe. But um, we would want to give a chance to have, give ourselves a full, a full recovery, maybe. So that is transformative and not just more like I survived my trauma. Yeah, thank you for that. And and I I like that example of the, the moving and I um guests that have been on before have talked about big T trauma and kind of little T right, trauma. Exactly. Um yeah. and this idea of something that on the face of it you might think, well that's you know that well I haven't experienced any trauma, but actually the the kind of impact of it or actually even moving once and <laughs> having to readjust can be yeah. sometimes depending upon when it is or in, in the older it's almost like um like a death or a I mean it's a profound loss and then again if we're in a family structure where we can process those feelings we're not going to have a trauma experience we're going to have a hard experience but not a trauma experience traumas where like I my emotional needs are are not being met and I'm alone and something um kind of you know there's some sense of injury or a profound loss something big potentially somewhat fracturing or destabilizing has happened so it's not don't ever move your children if you're raising children. It's how are you? I ask them, and that's a question in my history of like, how often did you move? What was the impact? And did you have support? So it's not about the feelings, it's about that connection to another uh, for children. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think um, it's interesting from my, my personal background. I I moved when I was like three, don't really remember that one that much, um, but I moved mm-hmm. as a, a teenager and that was something that is only very recently that I've kind of gone, oh, that was quite traumatic actually. Um, you know, at the time it just happened. I actually, my parents split up. I got home from school one day, my mom had boxed everything up and was like, we're moving. Um, wow. Just not even that far, just to like the next town my dad was working away, but it was just so sudden. So unsettling but I hadn't called it a trauma because our image of what a trauma might look like um and actually it's only like this year that I've gone oh actually that (laughs) and that was that's right well it's two things it's the move and it's the though I wouldn't have wanted your parents fighting so much that you're like boy I can't wait till I come home and there's boxes but when there's a surprise when for children, the rug comes out from under us and it doesn't matter how old we are. I was 14, I was a teenager too. The rug coming out from under us um, is a game changer in terms of how our, how our sense of security, how our sense of I can trust and I can have, then all of a sudden now the nervous system is, wow, you know, life can change on a dime. And until that's sorted, 
then that can do a lot of things. I don't stay in a relationship. I don't trust other people, friendship or otherwise romantic. Like, you know, I have a way I have to disassociate from my emotions because I had to disassociate from that one. And then I never learned how to deal with kind of big feelings and big pain, all the consequences. And just, I have a thought to share with you on just this idea of even moving a lot. So when I work with people around anxiety, I like to strip it back to like, what is it phobic? Is it about panic disorder where you're just, your nervous system and um, we just wanna work with that and intervention around anxiety. And often when you look at where does social anxiety come from, it can be, you know, moving a lot and adaptively like having a way of doing that. But, but the anxiety started to be like, I always have to work very hard to fit in and that, that's hard on the system. Then those people can sometimes self-identify as introverts. So are you an introvert or are you socially anxious? An introvert is not, you know, is not driven by trauma necessarily. Or, or really at all, it, it's just a way of being and I feel good with others and I just need to kind of titrate that versus social anxiety, I'm avoiding because it is so hard. Like I ha have had so many situations where I have to kind of show up and connect and that produces, that was kind of an overwhelming thing. So I don't do, I, do, I don't um, prescribe, I can't with my license. Um, but I love kind of unpacking di diagnostics with people that have walked around with a few labels and you know they might be absolutely appropriate or were appropriate, but with neuroplasticity, it's changed. Or maybe it's just a big misunderstanding of trauma. Yeah, it's interesting that introvert social anxiety because I would identify as both, but different situations. So you can feel the difference. Yeah. Know? So if it's, I have friends that I'm that I'm close to and I enjoy spending time with them, but too much time around people, even people I'm comfortable with, leaves me quite drained and I need right. my space. So that's my kind of introvert side, I or what I call my introvert side. And then if it is a new social situation, new people, I'm anxious about that because I don't know them. I don't know how to interact. And so I see it as yeah. two different experiences around. Yes. Yeah. And, and what I love, Hannah, is that you're in touch with your body because our body is actually, it's kind of like in my, my wakeful self or my ego self. Is this my fear saying no or my intuition saying no? How we understand that those cues, because the behavior might, could be on, you know, either one, you know, and it's kind of what sources, you um, that you know and, and understanding our states so yeah exactly exactly so you know sometimes my work is not only what are you feeling what's happening but what's happening in your body we've tended to not only be disassociated from our our emotions but our bodies and certainly I was in my trauma response one of the responses was to just go from basically gained 80 pounds in three months at 16 years old. And um, it, it, that alone was just a journey back, which is one of the chapters I have, one of the aspects I explore that I dieted horribly and continued to hurt my body by trying to lose weight. And then I shifted into cherishing my body, deciding that I didn't know what the number was gonna be anymore, but I couldn't bear the violence you know, of both anorexia, then um, food addiction. And then when I cherished my body, 
all the things that I needed to do coming from a, I cherish this body, not I hate this body and it needs to be different so I can love myself or prove my worth, then my body found its right way. So, you know, this, this idea of disassociation and how I think people disassociate from death and dying, which again is another inner world part of my book. We don't deal with our, our mortality. We just like put it on a shelf and want it kind of kick that down the road, but what happens when we don't, when we embrace death and dying and we're far from that chapter, we live a different life when we do that. Mm. Yeah, um, I love everything that we're talking about yeah. so much. Um, it's interesting because I'm doing um, a bereavement support course at the moment at mm-hmm. a volunteer organization in the UK. And one of the activities we had to do the week before last was reflect on our own mortality. Um, yeah. And it was, it's, yeah, because it's something we don't, so I had to write at least 150 words on how I felt about about dying, what I want to happen after I, yes. after I die. And and it's, it's a really interesting, uh, yeah, activity to do and to reflect on. And actually, in the most recent week, we were reflecting on guilt and anger and, and experiences of that and what it feels like. And it's, yeah, it's a really interesting process um yeah and there's a man who wrote a book called a year to live and his name is Stephen levine and it isn't that he got a terminal diagnosis it's that when people do get a terminal diagnosis they clean up their unfinished business they forgive others and themselves they might quit their job they might even work more because they love it so much Uh, what if today, what is today, the 23rd of October, Mm. if we knew we were going to die October 23rd, 2021, what would be different? And Mm. so through this book, and it's not even a big book, he goes through, and of course, we probably wouldn't, we would just transform our life based on this wakefulness about, I am going to die someday. How does that inform my life today? Um, Which is incredible, because there, there's even forms of therapy that are about that existential fear that so many people have. They, even little children are scared to go to sleep because they're afraid they might die. Like we need to figure death out and other cultures do this beautifully. That really is woven into life and death as part of the whole. And we don't do that. Um, and so it just felt important to kind of have that um, as part of living wakefully is about um, kind of having more peace around that. One of my stories, which is cool, it's a man who has not passed yet, but when he wrote his story um, to be included in my book, um, he's, I mean, he only has a very short time. He probably, I don't know if he'll see to the end of this year, but he's been living that for two and a half years. And it's such a great story about to fight it, to fear it is so exhausting that in the end, it comes back to the living in the moment. But this is from a man, his moccasins are, he's looking at death's door, absolutely. And so it's, um, there's great freedom. There's great peace. There's great relaxation. And again, doing that scary thing of facing, you know, what we, and your class, it sounds like it's got some great activities to kind of yeah. lend itself to that inspiration for you. Yeah, well, I think ultimately the aim is that you've you've done this course and then you can support people who are bereaved exactly. to, to explore that. But exactly. yeah, it was so interesting because my my thoughts on my mortality and dying was I'm not actually afraid of the dying bit. I'm afraid of the not having lived bit. So actually looking at it and thinking, well, I want to 
have made the most of it so that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, and whatever happens, I can go, that's cool, because I've lived to the full. Exactly. Yeah. And and this idea of um, not having living on borrowed time um, creates a kind of passivity. And um, it doesn't have to be fear and crisis, but living in that wakeful truth, um, you know, I, you know, not like I'll never be ready to say goodbye, but even with every exchange with a human being, at some point it will be our last and we may or may not have an understanding of that before. So like you say, whether it's bucket list stuff or just how conscious we are in our relationship, it's like, it's never a good day to day to die. And it's always a good day to die, both being true at the same time. Mm-hmm. Cause our life is so amazing. So it's never a good day to die, <laughs> but of course it's a good day because we are content with the nature of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mm. Um, I could keep talking about all this kind of stuff all night, but <laughs> we don't have unlimited time. Uh, so yeah. I wonder if you have um, a final thought uh, on wakefulness, trauma, healing, anything really that we've kind of been covering before I asked you my set questions. Okay. Well, we didn't talk a lot about the outer world parts of wakefulness. And I guess that um, has felt very important to me. One is actually nature, nature as, as me which is a different relationship to nature. It's more I thou and more spiritually based, but boy, with the environment where it is right now and the crisis, if we had more of an I thou relationship to nature and animals, it would be different. It just would be different rather than it being a policy issue. I feel like it's a relationship issue. So I have that in the book. I have a huge aspect on conscious relationship because I do a lot of couples work and I just believe, but it's not just couples, it's sisters and brothers, it's parent child, it's friendships, how to be conscious in our really like we can do great when we go to our little meditation or church but how are we treating people? So it's the, the other side of the coin, not how we're treating ourselves, but how conscious are we in our relationship? But again, people need concrete tools. I have a communication tool. I have a repair tool. I have a collaboration tool because we sometimes don't know how to collaborate with one another. And then there's a, an aspect of making our way in the world. And, and when I finished this book, I didn't, COVID had not happened, but it's all the same stuff. It's living in this world and how to navigate the suffering, the pain, the inequities, the realities, and not disassociate from that. And so I felt like I needed to give some support to how do we bear it all? Um, So I just want to name those pieces because whether it's anyone even accessing my book or not, I think they're part of living our most wakeful life, our inner world um, focus and our outer world focus. So I just finished with that. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. And I think that's really yeah. timely considering, you know, what's happening yeah. in, in 2020. Um, yeah, exactly. thank you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd love to ask you my set questions and find out your thoughts. On okay. Uh, so the first one is what brings you joy in your life? Well, it's, um, I think the times have actually, uh, the things that I might have answered a year ago as part of what brings me joy are not available to me because I love to travel and I love to go to movies and I love to eat out. And I love like, that's just has been my, um, you know, cherishment of the things available in the world. And I feel like both in privilege and so grateful to have them available to me. So that's a really important question Hannah, these days for everybody. Like, wow, if my happiness depends on 
uh, this or that, and then I don't have that, that's that's a form of codependence. So I have been working myself and with others around, okay, where is the deep joy? Even if I can't travel, can I find some deep nature around me? Because nature is a place for me. My spirituality, relationships, though, yeah, sometimes I have to Zoom right now and I'm not going to be giving, you know, some of the people the hug that my body wants to give them because I'm a hugger. So it is to really go to the basics, I think, now of what sources um, our sense of the goodness of life and joy. Um, so I would say some of the things we talked about, um, kind of, and maybe segueing into the second question of what life makes life meaningful, yeah. the intrinsic goodness in life, connection, deep connection with others as authentic self, deep connection to self, it, myself, um, and my spirituality in the form that I take it, um, which is not necessarily religious. So I would say, and purpose, um, I think is pretty um, important just to what I'm noticing uh, when I'm excited to do this podcast with you and, and share my story and offer support, um, yeah. how, how that gives me the joy and meaning in my own life. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I think, yeah, that's a really important point that actually we may have had things that would have been our answer um, to this yeah. a few months ago that, yeah, like you said, aren't accessible. So, yeah, thank you for that. And something for, for listeners to maybe think about for, for themselves where they're getting their own source of deep joy, I think you called it. Um, you've answered my second question as well, which is awesome. So I <laughs> jump to um, my two around mental well-being, which is kind of our overarching topic. Um, and so the first one is what does mental wellness mean to you? Um, it means living as, as uh, you know, in a relaxed and um, really embodied state. One piece we didn't talk about, which is the second aspect I focus on, and I purposely did it as second aspect, is freedom from the mind. Because so often our mental state is about what's happening in our head and what stories do we believe and what rabbit holes are we going down. So um, there are many different approaches to dealing with the mind, but I think that is a critical, critical pot, part. We are not our thoughts, you know, you know, don't own your thoughts and don't let them own you, but that's a nice little mantra, but actually the heavy lifting of that. So whether it's meditation, whether it's practices of challenging your thought, um, the statistics are that the mind actually is making up uh, a lot of lies most of the time, that we are not accurate in our thoughts. They're literally just simply not true, so many of them. And so I, there is, you know, my well-being um, both is about connecting to the meaning and joy in my life, but it's also having the mastery over those things that will, will compromise what my well-being, which again, I believe our mental activity and our anxious mind and our storytelling and projections are hugely connected to where we lose ground and are mentally unwell. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'm definitely someone who spends a lot of time up in my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. I think you hinted at, at this um, a little bit as well. But for yourself, how do you maintain your mental well-being? What do you do for yourself? Well, I would say, um, you know, all of it works together, and we tend to take a compartmentalized, um, you know, um, approach to life, or or can. So if I'm not physically taking care of myself, but I'm expecting myself to, um, like, I don't get a lot of sleep, um, or if I overdrink, I'm going to probably have anxiety and I can have all the tools in the tool, tool 
kit, but I'm going to have a harder time dealing with my mind because my mind was actually affected by some choices I made at a physical level. So whether that's exercise, nutrition, rest, um, we need to not forget that wellness, and even with COVID at this point, excuse me, that is a really important system to cherish and take good care of. And I'm not saying like, sometimes I have a third piece of pizza and then I have to talk to my body and go, you're mad at me. I know, but it was so good. We don't do this usually very often, but I really, you know, so it's, it's keeping it real and it's keeping it not like robotic. Um, so physical, emotional is about what we were talking about, Hannah. We've got to be willing to feel what's happening and not disassociate from it and and know that we have the capacities and at least at the very least can grow the capacities. There are big there's big stuff going on and it, a lot of it happened all at the same time. And in the Northwest we had forest fires. We had everything going on and wildfires that were gonna that were encroaching Portland, which has not happened in my lifetime. So it's like one more thing and do I have it in me? And it was like keep keep feeling this, take breaks if you need to, but keep yourself feeling what's happening as then it can release. So that on the other side of whatever's happening, you're going to be emotionally well. Um, relationship, you know, if I'm off in one of my relationships, um, if I'm unconscious in it, I can take care of my body. I can feel the feelings, but that's probably not going to contribute to my um, best um health and happiness. So relational health. And then to me, there's always a spiritual component and it's, you know, quiet uh, meditation and connection um, kind of to source on a daily basis as well as in other ways. Um, it's also part of my purpose and, and service. So I think those things are part of being well. So all levels. Awesome. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, so my next question is uh, sometimes a challenge uh, for guests that come on is, uh, can you describe your mindset? Yeah, I, I, I just kind of read that and I just closed my eyes and the words that came are grounded optimism. And I, I, um, I feel like the ground is where we got to keep it real. And it means it's not just positivity, almost like it can serve as a defense and I bypass the hard stuff, but it's, it's the groundedness of life on life's terms. But I, my mindset, which I'm grateful for is I just see um, silver linings. I see hard stuff and I have my own hard stuff and, and the good stuff within the hard stuff is often low hanging fruit. I don't work with everybody that has that. So I feel like I'm helping people to, again, grow the, a brain that can, that can hold the space for both. Because when we can see the good in the heart, when we can um, see the consciousness and the unconsciousness that's happening in the world, I'm not hopeless. And that's huge. And then I also might not feel hopeless because I have good energy to work with and I might be able to make some contributions. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, the next one is my favorite, my favorite question to ask. Um, and it's, um, and we've talked about tools. I know you mentioned in your book, you have tools and we like kind of this toolbox approach uh, on the show. So everyone that comes on, I ask to leave us with between one and three top tips of things we can put in our own toolbox and, and try out for ourselves. So do you have a top one to three things you'd recommend for us? Yeah, um, I guess um, start treating yourself um, at, the, at the same level, like let love move in all directions. 
and the, what we started this podcast with, that there is a relationship to self-peace. So whether that's loving ourselves, whether that's um, remembering our worth and, re- and seeing that when we don't remember that it's confusion, but that, that there's a part of us that knows. So it's, it's a kind of live from that place of worth and self-love. So live from it, not just try to think about it. Um, I would say address any trauma. Um, if you have not done personal work, um, that is probably um, an important piece that is a glass ceiling. And you may not even know how it serves as a glass ceiling because it's invisible to you. And there's, again, forms you can even start with. The Body Keeps the Scores a great book around trauma or see a therapist or, you know, it can take a lot of forms. You get my book or books like my book. And then thirdly, be conscious in your relationships. We are so we are so wired to be connected to other. We are mere neurons. And I think there's been just a growing isolation over the past few decades because we adopted this idea of fierce independence as like a North Star. We need each other and need is not pathological. And I think that's actually some of the anti-racism stuff of we need to remember good tribalism like the connectedness to all of uh, each other that um we can forget along the way and um and not be again so kind of isolated and individualistic so be conscious in your relationship and remember the importance of relationship um so those are my three yeah awesome thank you so much for those and then my final question is where people can connect with you online if they're interested in working with you and obviously we've been mentioning in the book what's it called where can we find it all of that stuff yeah well it's um it's called river to ocean living in the flow of wakefulness so the idea is you and i are individual rivers but we're intrinsically connected to the ocean which is this beautiful vastness however we define that and um, maybe I have more mountains to climb than you do, or you have more mountains to climb, but, but every river is both unique and yet part of the whole. Um, so it's actually on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, people can go to my website, harborglowholistic.com. And um, I can send them a book if they want to print copy, but it's also now um, in Audible. So it's, it's in an ebook and it's um, downloadable if you are a uh, listen kind of person. And um, people are welcome to contact me to work with me. My practice is fairly full. And we kind of need to practice within kind of the purview of our license, which is me staying within kind of um, state boundaries. And to you know, to a large extent, COVID's changed that, which is great because people just, you know, can do things in Zoom. But um, I would say, um, you know, certainly to reach out to me if they want to connect. And then on my website, I do blogs and I, and I have an email um, wakefulness community that people can be part of if they want to hear from me about once a month. Awesome. Amazing. And we'll um, link in the show notes to all of those. And yeah, I spoke to someone recently and we sort of were exploring the state boundary thingy in the US, which I think is a bit bit different. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. I've absolutely loved speaking with you and everywhere we've been on this conversation and uh, honestly could have kept speaking for ages. (laughs) Me too. I feel the same way. Thank you, Hannah, so much for having me. It's truly been lovely. Oh, you're so welcome. So thank you again to Catherine for joining us. And as I said, I really loved this conversation. I loved listening back to it. And actually, 
I mentioned about the bereavement support course that I had been doing when we recorded this uh, and how interesting the reflections were of things that we don't necessarily think about all the time. And actually, I noticed something very interesting uh, in my own understanding of grief and and the grieving process and my own thoughts about my mortality. And so I'm very much... Uh, have have always maybe not always but kind of thought I don't want a big funeral I don't want a big fuss maybe that is linked to my (laughs) sense of worthiness and you know um and my own views of of what happens when we die and and my own beliefs and everyone will have their own beliefs but I very much just didn't want a big thing I just wanted uh donate my body to science or organ donation or whatever um and then yeah I just I won't be here so whatever And actually having completed this course and exploring a bit more about loss and grief and and I've changed my view in that, yes, it won't affect me because I won't be here. But I think that that process of funerals and and passing and the way that we um, commemorate or celebrate a life that is a really important part of the grieving process for the people left behind. It's a way of saying goodbye to that person and, and not necessarily getting closure, but it's a way of, it's part of the process, I think. And I think that that is particularly evident this year when funerals have been different, where we haven't been able to say goodbye or come together to celebrate someone's life in the way that we would have before. And that that is having a lasting impact on people's bereavement of, of it being harder of not being able to have said goodbye to someone or uh, whether that is before they passed or after at a funeral and actually it's 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 partly the course I think I reflect on it but partly also observing um what's going on and you know, listening back to conversations like we had Anne Allen on to talk about loss generally, not not just um, bereavement. But yeah, I think um, my view has changed that it's, it's in a way, I don't know, maybe an act of love to, to other people of allowing them that space that is going to maybe help them to, to process or, or whatever. Um, and I guess it it's um it comes back to one of my thoughts about about the uh, the podcast that we can have our own our own views our own opinions on things our own beliefs about how we want things to be whatever that is and in this context it's what happens when I die so very morbid <laughs> maybe um but not being so rigidly held to those that you can't adapt and change your views and your opinions when you hear something different when it kind of challenges your assumptions and your beliefs and it's one of the reasons that I love the show and having all these conversations and I encourage you to listen to episodes with a, an open mind because actually sometimes you might hear something which just really strikes you and, and makes you question things or look at things in a new way um, and for me personally I think that's a really important part of continued personal growth and uh, adaptation and I think that through conversations with people through experience through my coaching through my volunteering through all of the conversations on the podcast 
I definitely feel that um, that they make me look at my life and my beliefs and my views in a different way and, and that being reflective and being willing to to change when maybe something that I've believed isn't right or doesn't feel right for me or true for me anymore being willing to change I feel that all of those experiences and being able to adapt have made me a better person and that that is an ongoing process (laughs) so I think about myself now and a year ago when I started the podcast just over a year and a half ago now probably um when I started coaching uh when I became a teacher like all of these points and then thinking about where I am now and I feel like such such a different person but also much more true to myself and much more authentically me um if that makes sense it's one of those things that you sometimes think I'm more myself but I'm different and it's um but that's kind of really how I feel and um one of the reasons many reasons I love the podcast but that is one of them that personal growth through having set this challenge to myself to start the show and then to be running it and we're what are we 116 episodes in um I'm recording a new round of interviews and it's it's um amazing stuff and I really appreciate every single one of you who is tuning in and listening um and who messages me to to say um what you've got out of it and how um how it's helping you or how you um just how you feel about the show it really does mean a lot so please do continue to message me and let me know what you think um can message me on social media at psyche coaching p-s-y-k-h-e coaching um across instagram facebook twitter and we're on linkedin or you can visit our website www.psyche.co.uk and you can contact me through the website. Uh, we've also just recently been updating the website with some exciting things that are going on. So we have um, new coaching packages. Uh, so you can check those out if you are interested in working with me and also uh, events. So we have a webinar coming up in April for anyone who is interested in starting their own podcast. It's something lots of people ask me about and I love to talk about podcasting and how one, it's just so enjoyable. And and two, I just, I think it's a great medium and a lot of fun. And so I love uh, sharing with people what I've learned uh, and encouraging them to put their voices out into the world, because I think we all have uh, such amazing things to share. And um, I really appreciate all the guests that come on and trust me and trust this platform as a place where they can share their story and they can share their message. Um, so you know, if you've got something to say as well, I would encourage you to to think about starting your own. Um, and if you are interested, you can join us on the 7th of April for that webinar and all the details are on the website. That's everything. Uh, I could keep talking to you all day, um, but I won't. <laughs> so have um, a good rest of your week. Um, as always, take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. And we'll be back on Monday where we have our seventh strategy roundup episode. Uh, so this started um, as a roundup of some of the guests that were on and we're on our seventh roundup, which is really massive. So we'll be looking back over the last 15 episodes of amazing guests. So it's definitely one, if you're feeling a bit like, ugh, 
what do I do? I'm not feeling great. That's really what those episodes are about is giving you um, a toolbox. It's giving you those ideas you can dip into and you can just try some of those things out and, and see what works for you. Um, so please join us for that. Um, and yeah, have a good week. Bye for now. 